Hello and welcome to episode Casper's Dog Events of the Cosper Pointcast. As always, I am your host, Trevor Shackles. With me today for the second time is another one of my Silver Seven Sens colleagues, Nate, aka NKB. Nate, how's it going? I'm good, man. I'm real good. I actually, unfortunately, uh, broke my finger playing hockey on Friday. Oh, man. Uh, so I'm, I'm missing a beer league game to do this podcast. So I hope everyone's grateful. That's some, that's some real dedication. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, not too bad. Um, I, I don't know. I'm pretty depressed about the Sens right now. So I'm hoping yeah. maybe, uh, you know, talking about it out loud with, uh, with somebody else will help with uh, some venting. It'll be like a therapy session. Yeah, exactly. Pretty much. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, so uh, I don't think there's going to be a ton of positivity in this episode. Um, but, you know, let, let's just uh, get into it. So sure. as everyone is well aware, obviously the Senators are on a six-game losing streak right now. Um, a lot of analysts last year kind of predicted some regression from the Senators team after their Cinderella uh, run in the playoffs. And I guess perhaps that's what we're seeing right now. Uh, do you think this losing streak is an indicative of who this team really is, or do you think they can be better than this? I think it's a, l- a little bit of both. I know that's not like the hot take answer that everyone wants, but <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to have to end this podcast early. No, I think that um, I think it's a little bit of both. So on the one hand, uh, yesterday, uh, last year, pardon me, Ottawa definitely rode the percentages uh, a little bit in the sense of how many one-goal games they won. Uh, in terms of, you know, some of the things that we think of as traditional puck luck, um, that definitely kind of fell in their favor quite a bit. They probably finished a little higher in the standings than they would have kind of on pure merit. Right. Um, on the other hand, they're not an awful team. Uh, even kind of mediocre teams can lose six games in a row. That's just sometimes the way the cookie crumbles. I think for all the kind of hand-wringing about um, their play this year, I was actually kind of curious to go and look at how they were doing from a shots perspective. How are they doing from a scoring chance perspective this year relative to last season? Uh, and it's not all that different. And in some cases, they're actually a little bit better. So if you look at things like, you know, score adjusted shot share, they're still, you know, below the, the break even mark. So I'm talking about Corsi share here, but they're not getting completely buried. I think they're about 48.5% at this point, which is not the mark of a team that's going to win, you know, get to 100 points or anything, but that's not a team that, you know, is just completely hopeless either. So I think that in a long season, losing streaks like these can happen, absolutely. I don't think that's necessarily an an indictment of them as a playoff team, Um, but I think if people came into the season expecting them to, you know, contend for... The division crown again that was probably a little bit too optimistic i don't think that was ever realistically going to happen how dare you have a sensible take and, um <laughs> I was, yeah. go ahead no honestly i i agree with a lot of that um i do think one important thing to note um in terms of their shot share too is that they're a team that blocks a ton of shots so they're yep. definitely going to look better um when you look at fenwick numbers um yep. I, I don't necessarily know if that's more predictive of success per se, because mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that still does say that they have the puck in their defensive zone more often. So I don't know if it's necessarily great. Um, but I guess there is something to be said for the fact that those shots aren't actually getting on net. Um, and when those shots actually are getting on net, a big issue is that their goaltending has been subpar. And I think honestly, that's one of the main things uh, one of the main reasons why they haven't been better than they have is that um, in the system where you give up, you're going to give up a lot of shots every game. Ottawa is going to give up, you know, more than 30 shots a game pretty much all the time. They mm-hmm. need Craig Anderson and even Mike Condon to be, you know, at least 915, maybe even like 920 goalies, at least one of them, right? So um, mm-hmm. I believe if Anderson's below 900, I believe Condon's around there. Maybe it's like 905 or something. Yeah, something like that. So definitely, Mm -hmm. um, I would say that's pretty much one of the main reasons why they've struggled so far. Obviously, there's a lot more, but uh, yeah. yeah, And I mean, like, so to to go to your, to talk to your point about, you know, the difference between Fenwick and, and Corsi, broadly speaking, over the course of a season, those two things tend to end up in the same place. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Sens right now actually are 
like a positive Fenwick team, or they were last time I checked. I think that was. Yeah, I think they were like 15 I think or that, something. Yeah, I think that was after they played their last game. They're also a positive scoring chance team, which if you want to be really optimistic, you could say, okay, that's that's the that's the thing to hang your hat on. You know, at five on five, they're getting the majority of the scoring chances. But the reason that uh, people tend to gravitate to Corsi, which is the kind of the shot share that includes blocked shots, um, when they're looking at shots from a predictive perspective is because it's the biggest sample and it tends to be um, to steal a a finance term, a leading indicator. So the bigger the sample, the more likely that you are uh, to be heading kind of in that direction. So if you were to pick one of the three measures, you you know, you you tend tend to pick Corsi. Um, The Craig Anderson thing is funny because I can think back to when uh, we were having the debate about Anderson versus Lehner, you know, three or four years ago now. <laughs> yeah. And I was, I, I, the record, let the record show that I was very firmly uh, in favor of, of trading Anderson at that time. Same here. And, yeah. and that uh, I thought, you know, Lehner was the future. And I mean, I, I would probably, you know, be remiss if I didn't say I was probably wrong about that in, in the short term. Like Anderson has was been very good. I mean, for the last three seasons, he's been better than I think. Um, we had, you know, reason to believe he was. So, you know, I'll definitely kind of eat crow on that. Um, but, you know, time waits for no man. And the question with Anderson really is, okay, you know, are you now finally having age catch up to you? Or is this just a small sample thing? And you're right, from Ottawa's perspective, you know, they <laughs> no NHL team can have 900 gold handed. And Ottawa definitely can't have 900 goaltending. Their margins are just so thin. They need 915 or 920. Otherwise, they're they're not going anywhere, unfortunately. Definitely. And the, the frustrating part about analyzing Anderson is that you really don't know if, you know, if this is a bad 5, 10, 15 game stretch or if he actually is, you know, done at this point. Because it is kind of weird to think, you know, five six months ago he was amazing in the playoffs and then all of a sudden he's just terrible like that's kind of hard to wrap my mind around but um that's kind of what possibility sorry yeah like i mean that's that's kind of what happens yeah with 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 goalies certainly you know i mean this there's a a a fairly established body of of work in this regard in the sense that goalies are good until a certain age especially the kind of when we're talking about the elite ones who you know, are able to play into their late 30s. You, so you end up with a bunch of, you know, survivorship bias here anyways. But when they get to that stage, it's just kind of like one day it's over. Yeah. And I mean, Ottawa was always risking that a little bit with Anderson. It would be uh, very unfortunate if this was the year that happened because they've got a couple more years of his contract. Um, but it, I mean, that it absolutely can happen. You know, you are away for six months and your skills, That's that's it. You just... A position like goaltending, it's the the margins are so thin that you know losing that little bit. And the difference between, like, if you think about it, the difference between being a 900 safe percentage goalie, right, and an, and a 915 safe percentage goalie on 100 shots is two 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 more goals if we're yep. rounding, <laughs> and that's like basically imperceptible to the human eye. I, I, it is imperceptible. I don't even have to say it. Basically, yeah. it is. Like, you wouldn't notice a difference in performance, right? And so that's what makes it so hard. It's so hard to evaluate goalies in that way. Yeah, and uh, I will say, um, the game against the Islanders on Saturday, um, I don't know if you're watching it or not. I'm yep. probably... Yeah, so the, the game-winning goal, I don't know if you saw that replay, but, oh, man, like, Anderson just looked like he was about 90 years old. I don't know what the hell he was doing there, but... That push was really slow. Yeah, that was not encouraging, really. So, you know, if 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 that's the future Anderson, I oh, I, I don't know if I can have much faith in him. But then again, you know, he's he's proved me wrong before because yeah. every, I guess, the past three seasons, maybe even four, um, whenever I'm doing like a season preview type thing, I always say, you know, if this is the year that Anderson stops playing well, and he's proved me wrong every time. So, um, you know, I'm not gonna say he's done just yet. Um, but I'd be lying if I said I wasn't worried. No, me too. And I mean, I think that one of the big reasons to be worried is that um, there really isn't a viable second goalie. No. Um, I mean, listen, I, I, Mike Condon has 
been, I think, almost what you'd expect Mike Condon to be this year. I, I know it seems like people are saying, well, you know, he's having a, a bad season. But, I mean, this is 906 or whatever he is now. That's what he was before. Yep. Um, and he, he, had a, he had a nice little bump last year, and that was great. Um, and, you know, maybe he gets a nice little bump again. But even even at his kind of peak last year, he was only, I think he finished at 914. Yeah, so he was at 914. You're, you're not realistically going to get more than this for Condon's. So then the question becomes, you know, if, if, if it's not Anderson, uh, and we're, you know, a little too early to this party yet, but if it's not Anderson, then who is it? I There's not really another good option. I mean, you... Hogberg would be the guy that you would Hogberg. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it properly. He I would think be, it's Hogberg, yeah. He would be the one that you would you would hope would be kind of in the future taking the reins. He's the one with the pedigree. He's uh, you know come over to North America presumably because he eventually wants to to play in uh, in the NHL. But no one else in that system is is someone that you would be confident kind of giving the reins to. And then that's compounded by the problem that the window really for contention is. The next two years, right? I mean, it yeah. <laughs> it feels an awful long way away right now, but that's that's got to be the plan, right? And so, yeah, that's 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 why the Anderson stuff is so disconcerting, really. Right, and, and if you do, um, it, like there are previous examples in the past where a team has needed a goalie, and luckily, usually the go- the prices on goalies aren't too expensive. So yeah. I, I don't think it would be the worst thing in the world if they had to go find a guy like that. You know, a guy mm-hmm. like Cam Talbot, I think he got, what, a sec, maybe two seconds or something, or a second and a third. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Leonard got a first, but, I mean, that was seen as really expensive compared to other guys. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, <laughs> it would suck having to give up, you know, a couple prospects or something, but they may have to do that, um, I don't know, honestly, as soon as this summer. So, so that's, I mean, that's an interesting question. Do you, are you waiting this whole season? Like at, at what point, uh, again, you know, we're, we're a little bit early on this, but we're not, we're not too early. I mean, they've played 20 games or we're a quarter of the way into the season. Yeah. You know, let's say 20, 20 games from now, Ottawa's record is, you know, roughly the same. Maybe they're plus or minus a couple wins over the, the break even mark. And, you know, they're within spitting distance of the playoffs, but kind of on the outside looking in, let's say four to six points back. You know, do you and Anderson hasn't been much better. Let's say he's up to like a nine oh five or something. Do you go get goalie help? I I don't know. They they would have to be like pretty much within one or two points at least, if not in the playoffs, for me to make that move. Just because, I mean, it, if you really don't think you're gonna make the playoffs this year, then there's no point. Especially if it was a UFA goalie, then that would be pretty pointless. Um, yeah, I I have. I haven't taken a look at all to see, you know, who would be available. But, mm-hmm. um, I mean, if they did target a goalie, it would probably be a guy who's, you know, in his mid-20s, a guy who is about to be a starter, maybe like a Scott Darling kind of type. Um, yep. But, yeah, I, I, it's definitely, like, a bit too early <laughs> to talk about this. But, you, like you said, a quarter, way, a quarter of the way through the season, it's not like this is insane to discuss either. No, and I mean, it's especially not, uh, you know, completely crazy to talk about because of everything we just talked about him, about his age, right? If this was, if Anderson was 28 or 29 and, you know, he was having a, a rough first 20 games of the season, I would, this would not even be a conversation. But at, as I said, at some point, you know, regression come not just regression, sorry, you know, aging comes for, for every goalie, every player. And you know, you've got to make a call on it at some point and you don't want to be the team that waited too long, right? Yep. You also, I mean, you don't want to jump too early if you don't have to. In Ottawa's case, there's a big price to jump too early, obviously. But it's, I, Anderson makes their life a lot more <laughs> difficult when he's not playing like himself. For sure. Um, I, and I will say one more thing about um, Ottawa's play this season. It's, it's not necessarily surprising that you know, last year they're a team that lived on the margins. They had a lot of one uh, one goal games. Um, there, some weren't technically one goal games because they got an empty net or whatever. Um, but you know, they they didn't have a, a large margin for error, and they didn't address any needs in the offseason. I mean, they got Nate Thompson. Yeah. Um, you know, they could put a guy like Thomas Shabbat or Colin White in the lineup, but they're not doing that. So 
it's not surprising that, you know, this is pretty much the same team um, and you factor in some, you know, expected regression and you don't have good goaltending and all of a sudden you have a team that has, what, eight wins in, what is it, 23 games? 20, or 20, 22, yeah. 22 games, 20. yeah, exactly. So it's not necessarily, not necessarily surprising. No, I agree. I mean, I think that, um, I mean, there, there were, there were kind of two ways this could possibly go, and Ottawa was, was, I think, hopefully betting on the other way, which is that a lot of your key players are young enough that you hope they, you know, either take a step forward from gaining more experience, or you hope they take a step forward from being healthy again. I think, especially in, you know, Carlson and Stone and Brassard's case, actually players who all kind of came out of the gate pretty hot in Carlson's case once he came back from injury. Um, you know, you can see that very clearly they were hurt in the playoffs. I think that's, especially with Broussard, that's, yeah. that's evident uh, that he was very injured in the playoffs. Um, and so you would you would hope for internal improvement that way. I, I think if you'd held, you know, Pierre Dorian uh, to his word and said, you need to answer this question truthfully about whether he thought the team was much improved from last year or whether, you know, realistically the target was kind of middle of the playoff race and, you know, hopefully win a round or two. I'd be surprised if he would honestly tell you that he thought the team would be a lot better. Um, It's just possible they kind of underestimated how much, you know, they benefited from a few things going their way. And that's like, I don't even really, to some degree, I don't even fault them for that that much because that's, really easy to do when you're in charge of things and they go well for you it's really easy to ascribe things that are maybe more luck based than you think uh to your own skill like i think it was really easy last year to look at the way ottawa played under Guy Boucher and the way they kind of professed to play uh, particularly defending leads with the, the neutral zone trap and all that and say well you know more of this was skill than uh, it was actually the case, right? Um, and I think it's it's kind of easy to to trick yourself into that a little bit. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. Uh, because you're right, I mean, bringing back some of the pieces that they brought back, like, you know, deciding to bring back, you know, guys like uh, Pyatt and Condon and then signing guys like Thompson, those aren't, you know, big improvement moves. They might argue to you that, you know, the, the tourist to Duchesne upgrade is is big, I think it's 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 an upgrade. Uh, I don't think it's like so significant that it would, you know, vault them up the standings. But no, definitely not. I uh, I, I agree with you there. Um, and it, it definitely makes sense that um, the organization would be pretty confident that you know they can go back to the conference finals with that same team. It's just kind of disappointing that. Uh, that they'd be so adamant on that, you know, perhaps money had things to do with it. Um, but, but anyway, um, moving on because of this slide, uh, Ottawa's kind of put themselves in a pretty bad position. Um, they're actually, I didn't know they were this far out, but they're actually already six points out of a playoff spot heading into Monday's games. Um, and I know it's, it's super early. It's not even December yet. Um, but what does the playoff picture look like for them right now? So, I mean, they're actually they're actually not six out. They're six out of the wild card, but because of the magic Ooh. of the division system, yes. they're three back of Detroit. Oh, so, sorry. Yes, you're correct. And they actually do have games in hand. So, I mean, they, to answer your question, uh, you know, how do they make the playoffs? They make the playoffs by being third in the Atlantic, I think. Yeah, and that was going to be um, my point. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, so, the, met- the Metro looks really strong again. Um I, I think that uh, New Jersey is a bit of a, a paper tiger. Uh, mm-hmm. I think they'll they'll come back to earth. I'd be pretty shocked if they didn't. But they're also way out ahead. Like they're they're a full ten points ahead of Ottawa right now, and uh, it's very hard to make up ten points over the course of a season, let alone over the course of you know three quarters of a season. So it's you know if they were to catch and pass New Jersey at this point by the end of the year, that would be like a, a pretty big accomplishment. And when you've got a kind of an unexpected team like New Jersey that 
you know, flies out of the gate like this, it just makes your life so much harder because I think Columbus is, is for real in the sense that they're a, a good team that will make the playoffs. Uh, I was really impressed with them on Friday when they played yeah. Ottawa. Yeah. <laughs> um, they just, uh, I mean, the biggest difference between Ottawa and Columbus um, was the way that Columbus entered and exited the, the, the neutral zone, just flying with control every single time. Yeah, they're an impressive you know, multi- team. Multi- multiple forwards moving uh, to attack. And Ottawa just, in that game especially, it felt like it was really obvious, was kind of scrambling to defend, would get the puck out, would dump it, and then, you know, send one guy and hope to try to generate a turnover in the neutral zone, but, you know, just be unable to do that. And it just kind of no, no offensive kind of uh, coordination going forward. But then, yeah, sorry, to go back to the question, you know, I think the Islanders are going to be pretty good too. I like that team a lot, especially with, you know, Barzal and, and Eberly now, um, that gives them two very dangerous lines. Uh, and, you know, Nick Letty is looking like himself again this year, him and him and Boychuk had a, had a rough couple of years, but they've been looking very good again this year. And so, you know, that's before we even talk about, uh, Pittsburgh. So you, yep. you know, you've got, four teams in in the Met that are that are very tough and you know Washington the Rangers like those are those are competent teams so really what Ottawa needs to have happen is I think twofold one um they need to get into the the race with the Atlantic and they need to hope that uh Montreal and and Boston kind of continue to scuffle a little bit I don't think Detroit's for real Detroit's going to fall out of there for sure um, you know, if Ottawa wins its next two games, they're ahead of them anyways. Like, I, I'm not worried about Detroit. It really looks to me like Ottawa's going to end up in a situation where if Montreal gets it in gear, they'll be in a fight with them. But more likely, it's going to be Ottawa and Boston kind of, you know, s- scrapping it out for that third spot in the Atlantic. And I don't know. It's I mean, it's, pro- it's probably a coin flip at this point. Yeah, Ottawa's just super lucky they they're in the Atlantic division. It's easily the worst division in the league right now. Um, just looking at the Metro, like honestly, like Philadelphia's last and they definitely haven't played well at all. They only have uh, 22 points uh, in 23 games, but you know, there is a reasonable scenario, at least before the season began where I could have seen them making the playoffs. Um, you know, Pittsburgh six, sixth in that division. Um, I still think they're going to make it. So I don't think there's any chance Ottawa gets a wild card spot. Um, but yeah, you're right. For at least for the Atlantic, I kind of see it as three horse race between uh, them, Boston, Montreal, um, and like you said, Detroit. I mean, they've been okay so far, but really, you look at their roster; they're they're not very good. Um, no, you know, Ottawa's what are they? They're three point three points back with two games in hand. So um, yeah, like you said, they can catch up there. Um, but yeah, like I, if Ottawa's in any other division, playoffs might even be out of the question at this point, but man, they're, they're just pretty lucky. Yeah. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm giving a lot of credence to Montreal here based on, you know, who I see on their roster when they're healthy and Carey Price being healthy and a lot of other factors like Montreal's, it's not been good. I should be clear. Like they're sporting a you know, minus 23 goal differential. They, their shot numbers look pretty good, but like, and they're 9, 12, and 3. Like, they, they, yeah. <laughs> they've not gotten the results. You know, I'm when I say that I, you know, I think they're going to be there at the end, it's because I look at that team and I think, you know, maybe that maybe they're better than their record indicates. But um, that's, I mean, even that's giving them a, a little bit of maybe more credit than they're, they're due at this point. It's It really is, you know, can... Will, will Detroit fade? I think the answer is yes. And, you know, how does Ottawa stack up against Boston and then, and then possibly Montreal if it gets into the mix? And, you know, we're kind of back where we were last year to some degree, you know, needing to needing to scrape in. But except this time, basically the biggest difference is Tampa Bay is, is good. Tampa Bay is, yes. like, really good, whereas last year, you know, all those injuries decimated them. And, and it's like this year, no, there's no one. I would be shocked if, if anyone caught Tampa Bay at the top. Yeah, I mean, Toronto's Toronto's a decent team. They're three back, yep. though, and they've played two more games than Tampa, so I don't see it happening. Um, and, you know, I can definitely see Ottawa still making the playoffs. Like, it's, it's certainly yep. not impossible. It's just what 
the time period we're in right now, the fact that they've lost six straight games is just impossible to actually think, you know, that they're going to turn things around because you, whenever these things happen, it's like so difficult to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, even though, you know, they could win three straight games all of a sudden and then people are going to be happy again. Um, so it's definitely like a weird time to be talking about it just because yeah. it's, I don't know, it's just almost hard to fathom. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I guess the, the, the frustrating part, you know, from the perspective of, of being a fan is that you are naturally going to expect more after conference finals run. I think, I think yes. that's, that's the biggest part of it is, you know, whether you talked yourself into Ottawa being like a legitimately good team or you thought they were just a fringe playoff team at, at the end of last season. I mean, I will say to their credit, like, they played well in the playoffs and they played well in the last few games leading to the playoffs. Like, yep. you know, they, I don't think it was completely crazy to say if they roll the same lineup back, you know, plus some minor fixes here and there, you know, this would be a much more solid choice to, to be in the playoff. You kind of be a playoff lock as it were, but I mean, unfortunately that's not what happened in there. This isn't like, this isn't such wild underperformance compared to their, compared to their possibilities. Like if I, if I thought about, you know, what is, what is Ottawa going to be as a team this year? And, you know, you think about it in terms of bands at the lower end, they're, you know, an 85, 80 to 85 point team if things go poorly. And they're probably a 95 to 100 point team if things go well. And just right now they're playing like that kind of lower end of the band. Yeah, no, that's fair. I agree. Um, moving on. So uh, last year, Guy Boucher obviously got tons of praise for coming in and implementing this new system and bring mm. the centers all the way to the conference finals. Um, this year, I guess specifically even just in these last six games, he's been heavily scrutinized. Um, a lot of his decisions now are very under the microscope. How do you view his coaching so far this season? So I think, I think there's two things to talk about when you talk about coaches, uh, specifically when you're kind of trying to evaluate their their in-game decisions because there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the in the locker room and you know and personnel choices that are um, a little bit hard for us to get at so i think it's important to focus on the in-game stuff and i think there are two things there's the, the first thing is you know how does the team play and this is what we talk about when we speak about uh systems which is extremely nebulous but that's what we mean. We're talking about, you know, how people play. I mean, let's be real. Like most people, when they say playing with structure or whatever, they don't act like no one ever follows up concretely with what they think that means. Exactly. They just say we're playing with structure. Yeah. Okay. It just means what? Um, so we talk about, you know, the, the way the team plays, the structure of how they play. And I'll talk about that in a second. And then you talk about the personnel choices. So um, they're playing the same way they played last year. And I don't think there was anything particularly wrong with the way they played last year, I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with the way they played this this year. It's not, to be frank, my kind of personal choice of how I would want to coach a team, and I don't necessarily think it's the absolute best way to coach the Ottawa Senators, but it is a very clear, structured way to play hockey, and that has a lot of kind of emphasis on, um, you know, having four people back in the neutral zone every single time that you kind of dump without contesting. Uh, there's a lot of emphasis on using the outside to advance the puck. Uh, there's not a lot of kind of center breakouts as the, as the, as the primary uh, focus. And it's, it's all kind of related to not giving up chances. That's like the primary objective of, of Guy Boucher's system. There's very little emphasis placed on the offensive side of things because and the, I mean the way you can tell this most clearly is the way that they play in the offensive end when they do have control and they do have the cycle and Boucher talks about this all the time post game when he's asked to identify breakdowns is we didn't have the third forward high that's that's what he's always thinking about and that's a very defensive way to think about hockey again this is from a purely personal perspective that's that's not how I would play, but like that's a fine way to play. So I think from a systems perspective, Boucher's been fine. He's been the same thing he was last year. And to be honest, you know, when he came in, it's not like Ottawa had a sterling defensive reputation. Yeah. So you know, there was nothing wrong. I think with with you know at least having a season of playing like that, you know, get guys with some good habits. Blah blah blah. The second part of any coach's choices, though, has to do 
with his personnel deployment and, you know, who's he giving ice time to? And that's where I think he's getting a lot of criticism. And I think that is probably more fair. Um, There are, I think, two things that really bother people about what Boucher is doing right now. One has to do with uh, the relative playing time and kind of choices about who plays. So like the Freddie Clayson scratch obviously was something that I think, you know, struck a nerve with Sens fans, Um, you know, doing things like putting Dissingle on the fourth line, which is a little weird. Um, But then also in terms of whether or not it's a good thing to juggle the lines. And I think the line juggling thing is, is very difficult question to answer. My feeling is it's, it's not a good idea to juggle it as much as he does. Like if you look at, um, any measure of you know line consistency across the NHL. Every coach is a line juggler. Guy Boucher is like an extreme that no one even approaches. Like there's no one else like Guy Boucher in terms of line juggling. This is like a quantifiable fact. He juggles his lines to no end. And that the line juggling I think is the thing that if the team's winning people forgive and if the team's losing people get angry about. So whatever. I mean the line juggling's the, the line juggling. Not how I would do it, but Whatever, it's not the end of the world. I think the personnel choices are a little less defensible, though. The, yes. the 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 Clayson scratching was the kind of obvious one recently that people were upset about. But like the continued insistence on the CC Finuf pairing, despite like the overwhelming evidence that it's bad. Do you know what um, their expected goals for is this season as a <laughs> for pairing? That pair? Yeah. <laughs> I um, let me guess because I actually I it's I, probably I, lower probably, than you would I, even guess. <laughs> Uh, okay, I promise I haven't looked it up. Uh, I, okay, I do know that I do have an idea of their shot number. Okay, I'm gonna say it's like 35. <laughs> okay, so I don't know the exact number as of today, but I believe I checked on Wednesday, and it was at 29 percent. Wow. In I think I think it was over you know 150 minutes or something. That they're is one of absolutely. The most, they're insane. one of the most played pairings in the league. Yeah, but yeah. the the hilarious thing is they had. So in, this is a five of five, of course. They had five goals for and five goals against. So, you know, uh, I guess you could say uh, they, you know, they were even. <laughs> I mean, but this is, I, I, you know, if you want to talk about the root of why Boucher does roll them out there is because, you know, they're, they're break even. And so yeah. from a goals perspective, I mean, I think, I think even Boucher in his heart of hearts, if you asked him, you know, had some truth serum and said, you know, what do you actually think of this pairing? I don't think he'd be effusive in his praise. I think he'd just say, this is what I have to do. Um, I don't agree with him, but I, I, I think that's probably what he would say. Well, you know what? It's funny. We, <laughs> you, went, you went on um, about how much he juggles the lines with the forwards, yet he's so reluctant to yeah. break up the absolute worst pairing on this team. That And, you know, that's... CC Fanuf is worse than any forward combination there has been, yep. any D combination. It's there's just zero evidence showing that they're an effective pairing. And like I believe um when they were first together in uh when Fanuf came here at in early twenty sixteen, so the end of the twenty fifteen sixteen season, um yep. I think they were just slightly under fifty percent Corsi um as a pairing. But last year and this year, they've just been absolutely dreadful and such a drag on the team, especially yeah. because they're playing against those top players and they're they're getting, you know, well over 20 minutes a game. It's just, that's, you know, more than an entire period's worth of just being stuck in your own zone. Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of, I, I agree with you completely, by the way, and I think that um, it's really difficult to, to overstate how how much of a negative impact that pairing has because I mean it's not only when they're on the ice and this is where kind of like the the trickle down effect of having uh, a player or a line or whatever that just gets shelled comes into play is you know what are the odds that they're going to finish a shift in the offensive zone minuscule (laughs) right I mean even if they don't get scored on they're gonna finish the shift in the defensive zone and that means whoever you send over the board next is going to be starting in the defensive zone. That's a good point. And, and, and that's, that is a very real drag on everyone else's performance. Um, that stuff, I mean, is a, it's, it's, 
I, I, I'm not aware of, of a measure that really quantifies that from a kind of pure stats perspective. I know some people have, have looked at it, but it's... You mean like D-zone D start percentage or like... Well, no, like, okay, so what you'd want to be looking at is the effect that a pairing or a player or a line would have on the next pairing okay. after. Okay, yeah, yeah. Right? And I mean, I know people have kind of tried to get at it a little bit and maybe I'm just not fully up to date on the, the latest stats, but... Um, that has a very kind of real negative effect. I think the reason that they don't see it as being possible to split up CC and FNUF, which kind of goes back to my earlier comment, where I, I think if you had, had Guy Boucher in a moment of truth, you would say it's a necessity, is because I think that he is a very firm believer in roles. That's why he you know, puts Pyatt um, up on the top line sometimes, because Pyatt's role is to provide defensive responsibility. Um, and it's why, you know, he does things like um, Boucher, I'm talking about here, he will, you know, have in the second and third, late second period, early third and kind of third period onwards of, of close games where the Sens are tied or trailing or, or ahead, um, you know, if there's a defensive zone draw and either Dezingle or Hoffman's line goes on, those two will start on the bench and, uh, you know, one of Pyatt or whoever will start on the ice and then if the Sens win the draw, then they have a change. It's because Boucher is a big believer in roles. Like roles are how he thinks about his team. And so he sees Fanuf and CC as like the shutdown role. I think he correctly understands that, at least from CC's perspective, he's not ever going to be an offense generator. You can't give him the cushy minutes and expect him to score a ton. You know, therefore... He should be the shutdown guy, but I think that's that's a mistake, right? Like, I, I, if I did like guess it to like why they fall into this trap, I, I would wager it has to do with Guy Boucher's kind of imagining of what the role is. Yeah, and that, that's probably true. Uh, just the frustrating part is that, um, you know, coming up as a prospect, CC was supposed to be this offensive guy. You know, he yeah. had sixty point seasons in the OHL. He was supposed yeah. to be you know, like a 40-point defenseman, and I think his career high is 26, um, you know, and so if he's not good at that, and he's, you know, terrible, uh, you know, in the in the defensive zone with, like, being aware of his positioning, then what kind of value does he bring to you? And it, it, it's frustrating also in the sense that I don't understand how you can watch that pairing every single night and be pleased with what you're seeing. Plus... If there's actually somebody feeding Boucher numbers, which I don't know how much he's actually getting, then it would look even worse. So I, I just don't understand what he sees positively, even if you want him in, even if you want those two in their roles. I think it's just a necessity thing. I I, I would I don't think Boucher's dumb. Like I no, it's I not dumb. He, I, I I think he. I really think he looks at them. He says, this is what I need them to do. I need someone to do this thing. They're not doing it optimally, but it's the only thing I can ask them to do. Right. Um, I think, and I, I mean, I think it's very hard to, to break out of that kind of role mindset, but uh, that's, I think that's probably what's necessary. Right. Um, what do you think about, uh, so last week, um, Ottawa claimed Gabriel Dumont and then, subsequently lost Christy Domenico um, yep. to the Lightning in essentially what was a trade. Um, what do you think about this this impact it seems like Boucher's having on the roster, though? Because it seems like, you know, it, Dorian is just getting a lot of input from Boucher. Uh, yeah. Boucher's just saying, you know, I want this former player of mine. And it seems like yeah. he's just going to have, you know, his old QMJHL team or something. Yeah, so... Without, I mean, knowing the, the specifics of, of how these guys make decisions, it's it's still difficult to look at the last few transactions and say to yourself, you know, Guy Boucher doesn't have an, a say in these things. Yes. And to be perfectly fair, um, I, I don't think it's totally unreasonable for, for coaches to have input in, in player personnel choices because they're the, going to be the ones that are playing players. I think ultimately at the end of the day, you know, the, the GM and – and whoever else in the front office needs to make the call. But, you know, if you're trying to make a, a change to your roster, you should at least consult the coach. I think where it gets worrisome with 
with Boucher, and I mean, part of this also is going to depend on how you feel about players like Thompson and Pyatt. So I'm pretty low on them, so this obviously colors my opinion of them. Um, but I think it gets really dangerous in player personnel decision-making when you start to use things like this guy played for me before as a positive. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm not saying you shouldn't ever think about it, but if you've got two equal, well, they're never going to be two equal things, but you shouldn't be, you know, saying pros and cons, you know, one of the pros is, is he played for me. Cause that really doesn't, it doesn't matter that much to be honest <laughs> with you. Um, at least in my opinion, it's, it's the kind of thing that uh, I think gets easily um, overvalued. And it's not just in, in the world of hockey, like it happens in, uh, the world of business all the time, which is my actual real job. Um, the very common occurrence is for people to hire folks they've worked with to senior positions that, you know, there may be other people that are more qualified for, but there's this degree of familiarity and we assign a very kind of positive thing to that. There's a positive value that's associated with familiarity. I think in the, in the case of and show player selection, that's not always the case. Like, it's not always going to be positive. I was like, the Chris Domenico signing was one of the most baffling signings <laughs> that I can ever remember. Yeah. Like, as it, as it turns out, you know, he was, I, I think, what we knew him to be, which is a kind of a fringe NHL, he's a, he's a tweener, maybe, you know, maybe a little bit too good for the AHL, but in my opinion, kind of lacking the, the necessary go in his legs to, to be an NHLer. Um, but the fact that they went in and signed him last season was just so baffling and probably the strongest kind of indication of, you know, Boucher's maybe got a little bit more say than he should have because there are a million depth guys like Christy Domenico around. And to go pick the guy out of Switzerland, that was, was a little strange. Right. And, you know, we're all human. We all want to reunite with people that we worked yeah. with in the past. Um, that's, that's obvious, but you know, I, I do worry when, because, because we're seeing what kind of players that Boucher wants in the bottom six and they're not skillful players. You know, people always have said, oh, you know, Pyatt's fine, like as a fourth liner. And you know what? That's, that's fine. That's fair. Whatever. He's fine as a fourth liner. But he's not really playing as a fourth liner. A lot of the times he's on the third line and getting yeah. a decent amount of minutes. And it's fine if you have one of those guys, maybe two. But if you have, if you're having, if your bottom six is him, Thompson, Gabriel Dumont, um, Alex Burrows, you know, all these guys, like there's just your bottom six isn't going to score. And it's not like in the old, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was. You had your top line, maybe your second line, all those guys could score, and then your you know, bottom six was a lot, you know, they're like grinders. They didn't really need to score. The game is different now. Like you need your third line to score, especially it's not like Ottawa has Nikita Kucherov and Steven Stamkos on their first line. They got solid yeah. players in Stone and Hoffman and Duchesne, but they're not really like quite at that elite, elite level. So they're just kind of shooting themselves in the foot if you're playing Gabriel Dumont, like, all these games. And I really don't think he's going to be going anywhere anytime soon, honestly. Dumont, that No, is. yeah. And, and so actually, I mean, I think just to kind of go back to an earlier point that I made about how, you know, Boucher approaches systems, like, this, this kind of is in keeping, or his player selection is in keeping with what he thinks is the most important part in hockey, and that's keeping the puck out of the net. I mean, there, there are two sides to winning hockey. Obviously, you need to score, and then you need to prevent goals. And, and Boucher very clearly, in my opinion, very heavily favors the defensive side of things. It's why, you know, he's got issues uh, with giving Chabot bigger minutes than, you know, maybe other people feel he deserve, deserves based on his skill set. And it always has to do with goal prevention and not making mistakes. Guy Boucher is like, a don't make mistakes coach. And these yeah. guys are, I mean, for whatever else you want to say about, about Tom Pyatt, I don't remember the last time he like coughed it up in the middle of the ice. He does. He it's, I mean, he doesn't cough it up in the ice because he does a lot of things uh, that are less perceptibly bad, but are still kind of cumulatively bad. Like he, 
you know, is much more likely to kind of just ring it off the boards and not get a proper exit that way. He's, you know, much less likely to, um, you know, do uh, dangerous things in the offensive zone. I mean, again, this is not to like, you know, rag on Tom Pye at party, but um, he's not, he's not ever basically, you know, getting the puck on the sideboards and just, you know, fling it into the middle and have the defenseman walk into a one-timer and give up a goal. He's just not going to do that. And, you know, Gabriel Dumont seems like that kind of guy as well. And Nate Thompson is that kind of guy as well. And that's Boucher prizes that very heavily. Definitely. Um, he definitely also uh, prizes veterans. Um, you know, we've seen that with Thomas Shabbat playing, what is he, I don't know, only a handful of games so far. And he was so reluctant to call him up that he was saying, you know, oh, he's only up here because Borvieski's injured. Um, you know, Colin White, he's been healthy for at least a few weeks now. Um, played around 15 games or so in Belleville. You know, mm-hmm. I, I really don't know why he hasn't gotten a, gotten a shot. Um, I'm hoping he will at some point. But it's just, I, I don't know how, I don't know how to expect these rookies to break into the into the lineup because you know he's obviously not going to put him on the top line but if you're Mm. reluctant to even put him in the bottom six even on the fourth line on the third pairing whatever I don't know how he's going to integrate them in just because it's not like they're you know super young or anything they're White and Shabbat are both turning 21 I think they're the same birthday actually uh in January so it's not like the same birth date yeah they do I think it was what yeah Yeah, it's weird. I'm going to look this up. Okay, keep keep going. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, it's not like they're just, they just got drafted. Um, You know, it's not Shane Bowers. It's not even Logan Brown. They're both a year older than Brown. So I don't know. That's just kind of frustrating because I think they can be real difference makers. And even if they're just depth players, I think that really adds their depth. And Boucher seems reluctant to do that. They have the same birthday, by the way. That's of course a, that's they a, do. That's a crazy, that's a crazy <laughs> dad. I did not know that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just role. That's a, to go back to what I was saying before. Like yep. he, yeah, exactly. Boucher is a big believer in role. He's a big believer in, you know, what what's the role of the third and fourth line? That's where he sees, uh, and the third pairing. That's where he sees Payne, uh, Shabbat, and and White, and those those players don't fit his like role profile. Do you know what I mean? So, yep. I. I mean, I disagree. That's 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 not how I would how I would do it. But this is he's also not like in breaking from coaching orthodoxy here. Like this is, it, in some ways, like you know, as as a sense fan, it's easy to complain about some of this, and I don't think it's totally unwarranted. Like there, I I think there are better ways to to do what he's doing. But like also, Guy Boucher is not different from from other NHL coaches. Like ninety five percent of coaches would be doing the same thing. Yeah, that's fair. I, I kind of linked it to how the Red Wings did their um, um, prospect development. You know, like they're really coming up in the NHL at like 23, 24 years old. Yeah. I, I really hope we don't have to wait that long to yeah. see these guys come up. But um, anyway, um, there's one other thing I was going to mention about Boucher. Oh, right. Yeah, I, um, I'm certainly not like calling for his head. I don't want him fired at this point. But I think yeah. it is, it is kind of scary that... This in this losing streak, we we've sort of seen like I've seen God like so many coaches be fired in Ottawa, and this kind of has a similar feeling to um, McLean yeah. and Cameron of recent past, and I'm I really hope that um, he writes the ship because it just it just kind of seems like he's been panicking and you know doing even more line juggling line juggling and uh, I don't know just just trying to do anything to get this team going i think as a coach um one of the things that's that's hardest uh is overcoming your feeling of a lack of control Mm -hmm. um and so it becomes very tempting to do something for the sake of doing it and that's when you're most susceptible to making particularly panicky moves so when people talk about uh, the kind of you know quote unquote panic moves that that Boucher has made. He's made some weird ones, no doubt. I think that has to do with the feeling of I need to do something. Like I, I you know, I'm the coach. I'm the person in charge here. I need to do something. And and I mean the way Boucher mostly exerts that 
kind of influence and that need to do something is through the line juggling. That's, I mean, I, I would say if I had to guess, that's why, you know, he's the most active line juggler in, in the league by a mile is because that's a way for him to feel like he's, he's doing something. Um, and again, this is not like uncommon. A lot of NHL coaches do that a lot. It's also a way to set yourself up to make more mistakes though. The more, the more decisions you're making, the more mistakes you can make. I think the best the best way to think about it is, you know, take a long time to make what you think is the most correct decision and ride that for a period of time and evaluate. Uh, but I also understand that, you know, when you're coaching in an NHL game, it's going to be hard. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised that as the going gets tough, Boucher becomes uh, more and more prone to uh, more and more dramatic decisions that kind of would fit with his personality of what we know so far anyways. Yeah, that's true. Um, it'll definitely be interesting to see, um, you know, how it transpires over the next weeks, uh, I guess, you know, kind of into the new year. Um, I'm really hoping that he, you know, doesn't lose his mind or anything and Otto actually writes <laughs> a ship. Um, but, you know, we'll see. Uh, but, you know, moving back to the player side of things, Let's talk about Matt Duchesne. Um, you know, he finally got that first goal on Saturday. Um, what do you make of his play so far? Uh, I thought the celebration on the goal was pretty great, by the oh, way. Yeah. He, like, kind of, yeah. you know, threw his head back like, you know, some great weight had been lifted from his shoulders. And I, I mean, I, I hope a great weight has been lifted from his shoulders. I'm sure he was feeling a lot of pressure. I, I think Duchesne, uh, for the most part, has been good. Um, I think that... He is, you know, from from watching him, you know, more on a day to day basis in the last couple of weeks than I had, you know, basically his entire career. Like, you know, I watched Colorado games sometimes. I try to watch as much of the league as I can, but you know, I watch every Senators game, whereas I watch, you know, a handful of games from every other team during the year. The thing that you notice, I think, about Duchesne the more you watch him uh, closely is that he is a fantastic skater with a really strong drive to get to the net. Yep. And that's both a positive and can be a little bit of a negative, in, in my opinion. So he is the senator probably that I would say is the most likely to just walk another defenseman and you know make a chance out of a one-on-two. If I had to pick anyone on the team, I would have previously said Hoffman probably, maybe Hoffman, Carlson, Ty, you know, to be... Someone who's just going on a you know, one-man solo rush, going to take everyone on and you know make a miss and score a goal. I I would pick Duchesne ahead of those two because um, he's just got incredible hands and a real and a real kind of desire, yes. for lack of a better term, to get to the net. And that's I, I I do think in a lot of ways that's very positive. He generates a ton of shots that way. It can be a negative though sometimes. When And I, I kind of wonder if this has to do with the end of his time in Colorado where he was, you know, the team around him was very weak. And you kind of wonder if you pick up some bad habits where you're trying to do too much yourself all the time. And, you know, I'm, I'm generally loath to, you know, kind of critique players that way. But with Duchesne, it, it sometimes feels like that. Like he sometimes, you know, instead of going headlong at this defender – you know, stop up, see if you can find, you know, someone with a pass or, you know, play a give and go. Like, it just feels like there are ways that he could do more in the offensive end from the perspective of, you know, variation that I would like to see, that I would like to see more of. But overall, I mean, the skills that kind of we were promised, the the speed that we were promised, the overall kind of, you know, creativity, that's, that's all there. So, I, I can see a uh, I can see a way in which you know he integrates himself into the system and he plays with consistent and skilled line mates. He needs skilled line mates, by the way. He absolutely needs skilled line mates. Yeah. You can't you can't put a grinder with Matt Duchesne. That's just a waste of his talents. But if if you do that, I, I I'm generally pretty optimistic about him. Yeah, definitely. I uh, I agree with your point about um, you know his the fact that he's really dynamic and I think he's probably tied with Carlson on the team just in terms of, you know, if you watch him play, he's just, he's going to wow you. Um, even if he doesn't score, like he's just going to, 
blow past a defender and you know he I, I feel like I, I actually didn't look up his career shooting percentage but I feel like it's kind of low like it seems like he's gonna get a ton of chances and you know maybe that's my recency bias because he's had so many chances and only has one goal um, but he seems like a guy who is gonna create a lot of chances which which Ottawa needed um, not that Kyle Turris necessarily didn't um, but yeah I I really think that after he scored that first goal, I think the floodgates are going to be opening here. Um, he, he's really he's too good of a player for him not to you know be on like a you know fifty fifty five at least point uh, pace for the season. So yeah, honestly, like the past in this losing streak, Ottawa's had some. They haven't played well, of course, but they've obviously had some low PDO and you know if Duchesne's putting in a few more and then all of a sudden their luck could turn around and and you never know so I'm definitely um, optimistic about Duchesne I don't think you know the trade all of a sudden is a bad trade or anything Um, you know like you said he probably has some bad um, habits I guess from from playing with the Avalanche hopefully uh, Boucher can can write that ship and yeah honestly I've been impressed by him so far yeah, no, me me too. I mean, uh, overall, you know, what they were trading for was a skill upgrade. I mean, one, yep. we don't need to rehash the the whole Duchesne trade because there was a lot involved there. I I do think there's obviously something to um, them making that trade for the purpose of giving themselves more salary flexibility next year. I think that's a non-negligible part of the Duchesne trade. But, you know, part of it was also to upgrade the kind of overall skill quotient I, I i do think he's that in in terms of uh where he relates to Taurus for sure agreed um so lastly quickly let's uh finish off with some interesting rumors uh surrounding eugene melnick potentially selling the team in the coming months um and sends chirp on twitter noted this on sunday and a few others uh said they had heard similar things who knows if they're you know just trying to show off that they have sources or, or whatever um do you buy this, uh, and what would that mean for the organization if that actually happened? Um, <laughs> I, I think, okay, a couple of things. First of all, I, I don't have any sources, so I, I'm not going to start by <laughs> ah, saying... too bad. <laughs> I, I know, sorry. I'm not going to break news on the podcast. Um, there, I, I think there are a couple of things. Uh, one, I don't think this is a controversial statement to say that Eugene Melnick is holding on to this team because this is his best asset. And he wants to um, kind of keep himself afloat by being the the owner of of this team. I don't think this is a controversial statement. Um, We don't get to see the specific kind of finances of these teams because they're privately held. But my understanding is the common consensus is the money that comes in the door... Uh, versus the salary that they pay the players and you know whatever ongoing costs they have for managing the team, the Sens are profitable. The issue is that they have this balance sheet whereby they have a lot of debt hanging over them related to Melnick's original purchase of the team that makes it very difficult uh, for them to operate above a certain line. This is just the reality of Eugene Melnick owning the team. And I, I don't think this is a controversial statement. So the idea that um, he would eventually sell because of kind of financial concerns to me is, is, is totally unsurprising. What I am interested in by, what I am interested in is the timing of the thing. So what makes sense here? Um, I, I'd kind of be surprised if he wants to sell the team before they move to Le Breton uh, because I have to believe, and maybe I'm wrong in this, I'm certainly not like a, a real estate expert here. I, I would kind of have to believe that the team being in Le Breton would make it a much more attractive asset. Like yeah. once, once it's there, then you can sell it for like the real gold. Okay, so why would he want to sell it now? See, now I, he heard, I saw a theory on Twitter though that he was kind of being forced to sell so that yeah. a Le Breton deal could get done. That would so yeah, that's exactly what I was gonna say. So if I, I think if we agree that it would be worth more to him to sell, you know, later and he's holding on to the asset because it's the only real asset, why would he want to sell now? 
because his ownership is an impediment to making LeBreton happen. And by the way, I don't think that's totally crazy. Like I, when, you know, he first, when they first won the bid and one of their big selling points was there's not going to be any public money and all this bluster, blah, blah, blah. I have like zero faith in Eugene Melnick, the businessman. And I have like zero faith in Eugene Melnick's ability to line up the type of credit that would be necessary to pull this kind of project off, especially if he wants to be one of the like big heads. Like if he's got a lot of outside funding, a lot of outside help, that's one thing. But if it's, if Eugene Melnick is is principally trying to make this happening, no way. His his credits his credits bust. Like he can't he cannot get the funding to do this. So the idea that he would be kind of like quote unquote forced to sell that would be I would that would be a lot less surprising to me. And I mean just editorialize that'd be great i would be really happy if yeah. there were, if there were a new if there were a new set of owners i mean i think that's that's the other problem right like you know we're all saying you know we'd be happier if melnick sold the team because we're assuming that someone would buy it that would want to keep it in ottawa and that had deeper pockets than than he did i think you know if it's sold in conjunction with a deal to bring it to le breton then it's hard not to see that as a positive, to be honest with you. Yeah, and I, uh, I'll admit, like I don't know too much about the the business side of things um, in Ottawa. I think if I lived in Ottawa, I'd probably pay a bit more attention to it. Um, but honestly, like I think I speak for most of the fans when I say I just I'm just sick of Eugene Melnick. Like, and you know, if if this new owner does have deeper pockets then that's really all we care about we just want a team that can spend more money a team um that can build this new rink at Labreton, which um will hopefully um you know make them more valuable as an organization so i, I don't know I, I don't really think that anyone would be you know crying if if melnick sold the team maybe besides besides his own family members um like i just I don't think there's a real fan club that wants to see him stay. No, I mean, this would be, I think, two things. This would be a very different conversation if we'd been having it, like, six or seven years ago. I think he, Melnick bought himself a lot of goodwill um, originally when, when he bought the team, yeah. obviously, because the, the, those, were, those were dark days. I think, you know, again, I don't think this is a controversial statement. I think he's burned through most of that goodwill with basically everybody. Um, but then I think the second thing... Uh, is that is just a lot of uncertainty and unease around having a kind of a, a you know for lack of a better term unstable owner and you know it it really would put a lot of people's kind of mind at ease as a, as a fan yeah. if you know you knew being owned by like, let's say Bell buys the team. Let's just say, I know they're not like actually in the bidding or anything for, for the team, but say I, kind of like a, a mega corporation like Bell would buy the team. There would be pros and cons. I mean, the, the pro would be Bell's not going bankrupt tomorrow. So, you know, you don't have to worry about that. But on the other hand, you know, corporate ownership has its disadvantages. They, they can be just as strict with kind of bottom line payroll stuff, right? If you are in charge of a large public company like Bell, you're very interested in, making profit for your shareholders and you need to, you know, pay your dividend every quarter. So, you know, you are, you're going to say, this is your budget and you're going to stick to it. Um, so there are pros and cons, but at this stage it does kind of feel like the, you know, the old, the old advert, better, better the devil, you know, well, this one kind of feels like better the devil you don't know. Yeah. Agreed. Um, I, I'll definitely say that I'm, I'll believe this when I see it. Um, I don't know if this is you know, <laughs> imminent or maybe like a year from now, whatever. Um, I'm definitely cautious, cautiously optimistic about the whole thing, though. No, just, I mean, yeah, to be, to be clear, just wild speculation on our part. <laughs> oh, right totally, now. totally. Um, all right, well, uh, we've talked about a lot today. Um, but, Nate, is there uh, anything else you wanted to add or plug before you go? Um, I mean, not nothing particular that I, that I wanted to plug. I guess... Just as, as a kind of like final point about the the Sens and, and their season so sure. far, um, I mean the dis the disconcerting part if you're a Sens fan is that during the win streak the offense is just like completely evaporated not just from a goals but from a shots perspective, um, and that part is like legitimately worrying. Like if you go look at a a chart of of their kind of shots for and against over 
you know, a rolling average of five games for the season. The period when they stop winning is a very clear decline in, in the shots. Um, so from, from that perspective, you know, I think they're kind of reasons to be worried. But long term, this is, you know, still mostly the same team it was. They're getting on the season about what we expected them to do. Um, you know, you just got to hope for the Carlson magic to some degree. Yes. Well, you know what? Uh, I guess you'll have to come on the podcast again at the end of the season and see if uh, see if anything changes. Absolutely. More than happy to. Thanks for having <laughs> me on. All right. Uh, well, thanks for coming on again. As I wrap it up, reminder that you can find the Cost Per Pointcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And you can rate and review in those places as well, which uh, really helps out the show. You can also follow me on Twitter at ShaqTS and read my articles at Silver7Cents. And if you have any suggestions for future episodes, let me know. That's all for me. Adios.